Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, see it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing this morning? Good. Doing good. Doing good. I'm a little sore of, of, uh, from bowling, of all things. We got you too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how much of a workout just chucking a ball down will actually, you know, give you. So I think we're all feeling it this morning. But, um, all right, well, so as you can see, we are obviously continuing our study of the book of Colossians, um, and you can also see that we are going at a breakneck pace. Four verses we're going over this morning, so buckle up. We're going pretty, pretty quick. Well, last week we saw the prayer Paul had for the Colossian and the Laodicean churches. Right, that's kind of the main focus, and he prays for them to be encouraged by one another as they are knit together in love. And he prays that as they are knit together, that they reach full assurance of their salvation in Christ as they grow in their understanding and knowledge of Jesus. That was the, that was the heart of Paul. That was his pastorly prayer for these churches. Now, unlike Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, Paul is actually encouraged at the direction of the Colossian church. He's actually encouraged by them. Now, the Corinthian church, they were kind of just, just a, a bunch of screw-ups, really. But the Colossian church, according to the reports that Paul received from Epaphras, are staying disciplined and firm in the faith. So that's a, that's a good report. But Paul understands all too well the threats that surrounded the early church. There's a lot of different threats that surrounded them. And in this context, I don't necessarily mean physical threats like, like persecution, though that was definitely present. Rather, the threats that are in the mind of Paul as he is writing this letter are more of a spiritual or a theological or you could even say a philosophical nature. Now, we are currently living in a world where we are inundated with information, right? You, you can't really escape it, whether it be Facebook or, or mainstream news organizations or, or independent journalists or conspiracy theorists and all the rest. When we look at news stories, it can be difficult for us to kind of sift through it all to actually find the truth. It can be, it can be hard. And it was actually much like this in the city of Colossae. It was pretty similar. You see, Colossae was a crossroad for Western and Eastern thought. It was a common stop along trading routes from, from Asia to Rome. And this made Colossae kind of a, a worldview melting pot. 
All of the latest and greatest philosophies and religions flowed through this one city. And so for the Christians living there, it would have been difficult for them to sift through all of these worldviews and to have a kind of a firm grasp on what is actually true. And to make matters worse, there were some who were coming into the church attempting to kind of mix either pagan religions or legalistic Judaism with Christianity. So it was a, it was a hard time for, for the truth. And so since Paul has heard that the Colossian Christians have stood firm in their faith thus far, he begins in our passage today to exhort them to just stay the course. Stay the course. But how are they to do this? How are they to stand firm amid all of this false teaching and all of the competing worldviews that are trying to subvert and infiltrate the church? Well, that is what Paul will address in our passage today. And we will actually ourselves do well to heed these words of Paul. The attacks against the church, the desire to, to synchronize true Christian teaching with worldly philosophies did not disappear after the New Testament was, was finished. And so with that in mind, let us pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our time together this morning. Lord, we thank you yet again for the wonderful privilege it is to come here and to dive in to your infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. Lord, we, we love you, God, and I pray that, that, as always, Lord, that we can set aside our preconceived notions of, of who you are or who we think you should be, and Lord, let us cling on to what your word says. And I pray that your Holy Spirit guides our feet this morning, guides our minds this morning, and helps and enables our hearts to cling on to the truths that give us life. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, now, as we said just a few moments ago, these Christians in the church of Colossae are standing firm. They're standing firm in their faith. And as we enter into verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2, Paul is reminding these believers of the reality of their salvation. The reality of their salvation. And then he gives them the first steps in continuing strongly in faith. And so in verse 6, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. Now the first thing I actually want you to notice is the phrase, As you received Christ Jesus as the Lord. All right? Paul here is drawing the mind of the church back to the moment of their salvation, to when they first placed their faith in Jesus. Now, against popular belief, Christ was not Jesus' last name. All right? That was not his last name. I know that might blow some of your minds, but it wasn't. Rather, it was more of a title. It was a title. The word Christ means Messiah, which in turn means Savior. Jesus was the true Messiah who was sent to set His people free, both Jew and Gentile, from the bondage of sin and death. And so Paul here is saying to the church, when you did that, when you placed your faith in Jesus as Messiah, you accepted Him for who He truly was and is. But not only the Jesus as the Christ, 
but also Jesus as the Lord. As the Lord. But friends, what Paul means by accepting Jesus as Lord here has a a much different connotation than what we often now hear about when people speak of accepting Jesus. All right. When I worked at a Christian camp some time ago, we would often have well-intentioned preachers come to preach to the kids. And, man, it was a mixed bag, let me tell you. We had everything from Jesus just simply wants you to be happy in your life kind of style of preaching to to, uh, hellfire and brimstone kind of preaching. It was a a mixed bag. Uh, You would like that last bit. I think I know that's your style. But But to be honest with you, we were just thankful that nobody brought snakes because that still happens in the the, uh, mountains of East Tennessee. So none of that happened, thankfully. But, uh, but all the preachers, no matter what style of preaching they employed, always, without fail, ended by asking the kids the question, will you now accept or invite Jesus into your heart? Now, this is a very well-meaning phrase, and it, it has a hint of truth to it, all right? Jesus, we are told in Scripture, does come to take residency in our hearts upon salvation. Look at Ephesians 3.17, for example. But nowhere in Scripture, in regards to what a sinner must do in response to the gospel, will you ever see the formulation, accept Jesus into your heart, or invite Jesus into your heart. That that phrase doesn't exist. It's not there. And yet it is often used with, with, with good intentions. Instead, what Scripture says in regards to what a sinner must do to receive salvation, the formulation is always repentance of sin and placing your faith in who Jesus is and what He accomplished on the cross and in His resurrection. That's the formulation. It's not this acceptance of Jesus into your heart. Again, that's a well-intentioned phrase, but it's not, it's not quite accurate. It's not quite there. It's repentance and faith. It's really important for us to remember as we go out and share the gospel with others. And so what does Paul mean here in verse 6 then? Well, in this verse, to receive Christ Jesus as Lord does, does again not mean inviting Him into your heart. Rather, it means to recognize Jesus for who He truly is and bowing your knee to your rightful ruler and king. That's what that means. Take a look at the word Lord here. Now notice how the L is capitalized. Now the reason for this is because it is translated from the Greek word kairios. Kairios. Now this word kairios is a, it's actually a very important word within the New Testament because it was uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai that the Jews used to refer to God in the Old Testament when they didn't want to utter the holy name of God, which is Yahweh. So they would use Adonai in replace of Yahweh because Yahweh was a holy name for God. It wasn't to be uttered lightly. So they would use Adonai. And so this title given to Jesus, Kyrios, is the New Testament authors equating Jesus with the Adonai, with Yahweh, with God, in the Old Testament. And so let's, let's try to put all of this together here in verse 6. Paul is saying, Therefore, as you have received the Savior, Jesus, and bowed the knee to Him as the Lord God, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. 
The idea that Paul is getting across here is that one of the primary ways that we continue in the faith is that we literally walk with Jesus. That we walk with Him. Now, think about this in terms of an apprenticeship. All right? What do you do in an apprenticeship? You literally walk in step with the person training you. You, you watch them. You observe them. And you do precisely the things which they do. And as you continue to walk with Him, you become more and more proficient at the job for which you are apprenticing. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that you have a new master who is the Lord God, and therefore you are to walk in Him. You are to observe what He said and did in all of Scripture. You are to model His behavior. You are to take the teaching and the commandments that He has given you and live them out. Daily recognize your need and your dependence on Him. We're to walk with Him. Now John Stott has also said of this passage that walking with Jesus also means daily bemoaning our sin and daily adoring our Savior. I like that a lot because those two things are also very important for our walk with Christ. As we walk in Christ, we should implore God to remove the remnants of sin in our lives, helping us put to death those, those recesses of sin that is still in our heart, that we still struggle with. To, to place in us a desire to follow Christ more and more. Because Jesus did not walk in sin, right? That's what we confess. That's what we believe. Jesus did not walk in sin. And so we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because this is not something we can do on our own, should seek to follow Him in that. And though we will never fully achieve that this side of glory, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are working to that end. But just as we are to bemoan and run from sin, we should not allow the guilt and the shame from our lingering sin to keep us from daily adoring our Lord Jesus. So that can often happen. We can get very down on ourselves when we, when we slip and we mess up. And we try to run from Christ. But that's, that's not what we should do. We should run to Him in our sin and adore Him all the more. Because even though we often stumble and fall in our walk with Jesus, His heart's affection for us never changes. Never changes. If you are a believer, then His heart for you is always and unchangingly love. Love. And so we should daily seek to adore Him and relish in that love and grace. Now Paul then, in verse 7, he then makes his metaphors to continue this appeal to the church to walk in Christ. He uses the metaphors of plant life and of architecture. You can't really get much different than that. Paul says, as we walk in Christ, we are to be rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So first, I want us to look at this metaphor, rooted. Not too long ago, I'm sure you remember, we had a windstorm come through St. Albans. Do you remember that at all? It was a really bad windstorm. I haven't seen a windstorm like that before. But it was really bad, and the damage done by it was pretty staggering. All around town, trees were toppled over. One of the houses in my neighborhood even had a tree come crashing down on a portion of it. Uh, now, the only thing 
that kept the other trees from kind of having this same fate was a superior root system. It was a superior root system. Typically, the trees that are first to go are the trees in which the root system is either shallow or rotted or just, or just simply weak. And so when the heavy windstorms come, they come crashing down, succumbing to the pressure of the wind. Now, likewise, it is our heart's root system that will determine whether we will stay upright or come crashing down when the winds of false teaching or adversity begin to blow. We as believers, as we walk in Christ, studying His Word, His life, His teaching, His commandments, and as we pray and communicate with Him, our hearts, much like the roots of a tree, will grow deeper and deeper and deeper in Him. Now, we can easily take our faith for granted. It's actually a really popular thing to do in our, in our particular culture. We can take our faith for granted. We can choose to remain shallow in our understanding and knowledge of Christ. We can choose to neglect our Bibles, allowing them to collect dust on our nightstands, and we can ignore our need to speak to our Heavenly Father in prayer. But in doing so, our heart's root system remains shallow and weak. In some instances, it even begins to rot. It doesn't grow deeply into Christ, anchoring us in Him. And so when false teaching or when, when difficulty comes, we should expect then to what? Stand firm? No. To come crashing down. Now Paul then uses the metaphor being built up. This is architectural language. Now the idea here is having a firm foundation for your life. Something strong enough to build it upon. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, gives the teaching about those who build their lives upon the rock versus those who build their lives upon the sand. Do you remember that teaching? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, meaning his teaching, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it what? It fell. It fell. And he finished and says, and great was the fall of it. And this is essentially what Paul is hearkening to when he is telling the Colossian church to be built up in Christ. We are to build our lives on top of, or sorry, rather, we all build our lives, all of us, build our lives on top of some foundation. We all do it. And now for some, the foundation is maybe your family. You build your whole lives around your family, and serving them and appeasing them and loving them are, the, are kind of the building blocks that you use to, to build upon that foundation. They are your foundation. Others attempt to build their lives upon their career. 
Everything they do is done to serve their advancement or recognition in, in whatever, they feel, whatever field they find themselves in. And for others, what they build their lives on is, is more philosophical or, or maybe ideological in nature. So, for instance, politics or, or various worldviews such as atheism or maybe even humanism. And the principles of those philosophies and ideologies, the principles that they promote, those are the foundation on which you build your life. But Jesus is saying that these various things that people attempt to build their lives upon, even their own family or another religion or their career, is like building your house on sand. Why? Because you're attempting to structure your life, to found it on things that are not eternal, on things that are not divine. And whether it be your family, your career, or some ideology, all of those things are temporary. All of those things will eventually fail you in some way. Familial strife or death will happen. Your career will eventually leave you desiring more and more with no hope of, of ultimate fulfillment. Not to mention the always looming reality that you could get fired, that you'll eventually reach the age or receive an injury that will make you incapable of doing that job. And politics is, you know, well, politics, you know, I say more. No political party can offer the healing this world truly needs. As believers, as we walk with Christ, we must be seeking and asking the Lord to aid us in removing the old foundations of our lives. Clearing out all of the sand that we attempt to build it on and replace it with Himself. The true cornerstone that will never crumble. No matter, no matter what may come in this life. We can confidently build our lives on Him and His Word. Now, you may not like this bit, depending on kind of, you know, your particular viewpoints or your particular feelings of your heart. But if we are to walk in Christ... And if we are to be built up in Him, then as one commentator put it, we need doctrine. We need doctrine. Now, I mentioned a while ago, in uh, a few sermons past, that many churches around the world and in our country and in this, even in this region can, can kind of uh, put doctrine and four-letter words in the same category. They do not like doctrine. But the Apostle Paul did not see doctrine as an opposition to walking and growing with Christ. In reality, he actually saw it as a vital part of it. Let me read verses 6-7 through seven again, but all the way through this time. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, doctrine is not a four-letter word that stands opposed to your deepening relationship with Christ. The word doctrine simply means teaching. That's all it means. It's not scary, I promise. And Paul in this verse is telling the Colossian church that their faith is not a speculative free-for-all. Meaning that what deepens their roots... And what builds them up in Christ 
is not their own personal feelings of Jesus and who they desire him to be or who the surrounding culture says that he is. Rather, it is based on the good gospel teaching that they received from Epaphras, who received it from the Apostle Paul. Their faith and our own faith is established on truthful proclamations about the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins for those who place their faith in Him. That comes directly from Scripture. Despite what many may tell you, you cannot separate Jesus from doctrine. Simply because it is true doctrine who tells us who Jesus even is. So if we are to have the roots of our hearts grow deeper in Christ, and if we are to build our lives upon Him and not be knocked down by false teaching, we must pursue diligently true doctrine. True teaching that is found only within the pages of Scripture. As one Bible teacher put it, the Bible is the ultimate test we have to evaluate and reject religious fake news. Now, as all this begins to take shape in our lives, as we begin to walk more and more in step with Jesus, Paul says the result, the result from that, will be lives that are abounding in thanksgiving. How beautiful is that? Our lives will be abounding in thanksgiving. Theologian Mark Meinl put it well, and he said, Gratitude is a hallmark of genuine faith precisely because the heart of the gospel, the core of the gospel, is God's grace. Is His grace. The opposite of grace is merit. We are given something because we deserve it, like a payment for a job. But grace by its nature is not deserved. Is not deserved. The wonder of Jesus is that everything He does for us and gives to us is an outpouring of His grace. And so the natural outcome of our being rooted and built up in Jesus will be a deeper understanding of the grace that He has given us. And from that deeper understanding of His grace will rise a natural outpouring of gratitude in and for Him. And friends, our, our thanksgiving to Jesus, our giving praise and glorification and thanks to Jesus should be like that of a river that has overflowed its banks. Right? Our, our gratitude for Jesus should well up in our hearts and overflow because of the grace that He has shown us despite our wickedness. That should be the hallmark of our hearts, of the Christian heart. The deeper the root system of your heart is in Christ, the more you build your life on His foundation, the more your life will, will not be marked by, by complaining. Who in here loves to complain? I do. Or bitterness? Or anger? Or discontent? How many in here of you are, are discontent with something in your life? You just wish you had more. One, at least. This Ethan, we'll talk after service. Yeah. But our lives will not be marked by those things. Rather, we'll be known as joyful people. As people of thanksgiving. Don't, don't you want that to be how people describe you? I know I do. 
Now, it is important to note that this overflowing gratitude for Jesus in this life may at times not seem realistic to us. That, that may be something that seems far away, may even seem impossible. And certainly, it most likely seemed unrealistic for the church in Colossae, who were at the receiving end of some, some major persecution. And so the question is, how can our gratitude for Jesus overflow even in the midst of a difficult life? Well, the answer is simple. Even though it's difficult. It is not current life circumstances that are to be the motivation of our gratitude towards Jesus. That's the answer. I cannot overstate that enough. It is not current life circumstances that are to be the motivation of our gratitude for Jesus. But what should motivate our gratitude and what motivated Paul's gratitude to Jesus even while in chains was the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord God and the knowledge of His gracious promises. And so when things get difficult, there is all the more reason to spend time reflecting on Christ, especially His sacrificial love on the cross on our behalf. No circumstance in this life can change the reality of His work on your behalf. Granting you and I salvation that we never deserved. That is where our gratitude comes from. It comes from the Gospel. Now, I want us to step back for a second and kind of remember the overarching context of our passage this morning. Last week in Colossians 2, 4, just a couple verses prior to our passage today, Paul says that he has concern for the church that they will be persuaded by false teaching even though it hasn't yet happened. He is still kind of concerned that it could happen. And so Paul is essentially telling them, stick to the teaching about the gospel that you have received. Stick to it. That is how you will walk with Christ. That is how the root system of your heart will deepen in Him and, and so on. Now in verse 8, after telling them to stay with the good and true teaching, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, Paul's warning here is clear. Christians are to stick to Christ. They're to stick to Jesus and to actively guard themselves against false teaching that will attempt to steal them away from the light of true doc doctrine and throw them into the darkness of deceit, of deception. Now, which philosophies Paul is referring to here is, is, is kind of up for debate. It could be ancient Greek philosophies that were very much in vogue at this time, such as Epicureanism or Stoicism, or it could have been even Gnosticism, or it could have been the Judaizers who said that Gentiles had to become their version of Jews before they could become Christians. It could have been any one of those things. We're not told by Paul which philosophies he is specifically talking about here. But suffice it to say, Whichever it was, or maybe all of them, those attempting to peddle it to the church were trying to deceive true believers away from Jesus. And Paul says that these philosophies and empty deceit that may seem tempting 
And as if they offer true knowledge and wisdom, in reality, are according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this can be taken in a few different ways. But for the sake of time, I'm going to stick with the one that I believe to be the most accurate and tends to be the majority view among biblical scholars. And so Paul first says that all of these philosophies, as wondrous and complicated and as wise as they may sound, find at least part of their origin not from above, not from God, but where? From earthly sources. From the minds of men. And at best, man-made philosophies can only offer shadows of real divine truth. True philosophical and religious truth can only be found in the revelation of Himself that God gave to His people. It can only be found in His Word. No matter how intelligent other worldviews or philosophies may sound, they still ultimately find their, their origin in the mind of a fallen human being. All of them. But Paul continues, and he says that not only are these philosophies according to human tradition, from the minds of men, but also according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, the Greek word translated as elemental spirits of the world is stoichia. Stoichia. And this is used a couple different times within the New Testament. And the meaning of it can kind of vary depending on the context it finds itself in. Sometimes it can refer to what is called the, the basic principles, which is, uh, for instance, could be water, earth, air, fire, that the ancient pagan religions uh, kind of were built on and kind of centered around. But in the context of our passage this morning, Paul is most likely referring to demonic powers. The ESV Study Bible rightly points out that while these pagan philosophies that are seeking to take captive the church are from human traditions, are from the minds of men, they nevertheless are demonically influenced. Demonically influenced. Paul is saying that there is a sinister demonic influence over any philosophy that undermines and detracts from or tries to supplement the work and person of Jesus. Now that is a common thread amongst all false teaching that seeks to take us captive. They all preach and teach that Jesus is not enough. That faith in Him alone is not sufficient to save us. Or maybe even that He was not who He claimed to be or that His ultimate promise to us is not simply Himself. That there is something great, some, some greater treasure that the Christian life promises here and now. They try to teach that salvation and or fulfillment cannot be found in Christ alone. It's a common thread in all of them. And if we think this sort of false teaching died in the ancient church, we have another thing coming. It is alive and well now. Even now, there are those who attempt to bring false theology, false teaching into the church to tempt, to woo Christ's bride away from Him. There are competing worldviews and demonic teachings constantly surrounding us. Trying to take us captive by telling us that Christ is not enough. Now allow me to mention very briefly a few. And this may ruffle some feathers. Some people who may listen to this on, online may not like it. But as a 
pastor of Redeemer Church, I feel like I need to put these out there and let you know that they exist and to run from them. The first is called the Word of Faith Movement, also known as the Prosperity Gospel or the Health and Wealth Gospel. This has gained massive popularity all over the world. And at the heart of the Word of Faith Movement is the belief in the force of faith. It is believed words can be used to manipulate the, the faith force and thus actually create what they believe Scripture promises, namely health and wealth. It is believed that there are laws that are supposedly governing this faith force and that are said to operate independently. Listen, independently of God's sovereign will and that God Himself is subject to these laws. Meaning there's a higher authority over God. This is nothing short of idolatry. Turning our faith and by extension ourselves into a God. Furthermore, in that same vein, it teaches that God created human beings in His literal and physical image as little gods. As little gods. Before the fall, humans had the potential to call things into existence by using the faith force. After the fall, humans took on Satan's nature and lost the ability to call things into existence. And in order to correct this situation, Jesus gave up his divinity and became a man, died spiritually, took on Satan's nature upon himself, went to hell, was born again, and rose from the dead with God's nature. And after this, Jesus then sent the Holy Spirit now this is a lot. Then spent the Holy Spirit to replicate the incarnation in believers so they could become little gods as God had originally intended. And following the natural progression of these teachings, as little gods, we again have the ability to manipulate this faith force and become prosperous in all areas of life. Illness, Sin and failure are a result of a lack of faith and are remedied by confession, claiming God's promises for oneself into existence. And this is nothing but heresy. And this empty, deceitful teaching is currently holding millions around the world captive. And if you hear it, run from it. And teachers of this are actually pretty easy to spot, so they kind of help you out a little bit. They live exorbitant lifestyles. They have, they have jets. They have the nicest clothes. They own mansions. Pretty easy to spot. Another, and I know I picked on this one a little bit last week, is Roman Catholicism, as defined by the Council of Trent and Vatican Councils 1 and 2 in the current Roman Catholic Catechisms. Roman Catholicism teaches that faith alone is not enough to save someone. Rather, it is a combination of faith plus works, such as baptism, observing math, con uh, not math, uh, mass, I'd be, I'd be lost really quick, observing mass, confession, and acts of penance when a mortal sin is committed, which mortal sins, just to let you know, includes anything from hating someone to not attending a mass without, approved, without an approved excuse, or to lust, or to failing to baptize your children. And the list of moral sins goes on, and the list of works that you must do goes on. 
Now, there are many other false doctrines taught within the Roman Catholic Church, including the veneration of the saints, including the, the sinless birth of Mary, including Mary as the dispenser of grace, such as purgatory, and raising what is called tradition and the magisterium to equal authority as Scripture. But none so egregious and deadly as the teaching that faith in Jesus alone is insufficient for salvation. In the Council of Trent, which is still confessed and held onto by Roman Catholicism today, says in the 10th canon, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, that is right standing before God, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, meaning works, let him be anathema. And anathema means damned to hell. That is still confessed by the Roman Catholic Church. Now there are some Roman Catholics who don't know this, who don't know what Trent says, who don't know what Vatican Councils 1 and 2 say, who don't know what the current Roman Catholic catechisms say, and they do confess in faith alone, by grace alone, saves someone. But I would say to that that they're actually bad Catholics. Now, other false teachings that faces the church today that attempt to use Christian jargon is Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, New Ageism, and the list could go on. And maybe someday we'll have the chance to dive more into each of these. But suffice it to say, there are many empty and deceitful philosophies out there that attempt to pull us away from the one true gospel. And Paul describes these philosophies as empty for a reason. They promise spiritual fulfillment, and some even promise material fulfillment. But in the final analysis, when put to the measuring stick of objective truth, they are found to be lacking in everything that truly matters. Salvation, forgiveness, and a relationship with God. All of them are lacking that. They are empty, hollow of any spiritual truth and fulfillment. That was a little heavy. But now let's look at what Paul contrasts with these Christless, empty, and deceitful philosophies in verses 9 and 10. He contrasts them with the reality of the person of Christ and the reality we experience in Him. And this is where it gets beautiful, all right? He says, For in Him, meaning Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Paul is again stressing this to the Colossians again and again. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now the language that Paul is using in this verse is very reminiscent of his words in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It sounds really similar of Jesus being deity, uh, being God, and being preeminent amongst all things. And Paul is essentially repeating himself because he wants to make it clear that amongst all philosophies, 
amongst all religious leaders, amongst all rule and authorities, both in the physical world and the spiritual world, Jesus stands authoritatively above it all. He is God. Therefore, any promises that are made by Him, any teaching that He gives, any commands that are given by Him, whatever He and His Word says about life, about purpose, about ethics, morality, philosophy, and salvation, stands in complete authority over other worldviews, religions, and philosophies. And while the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, you and I are filled in Him. How wonderful is that? This means that everything that we need, whether it be love, whether it be comfort, or wisdom, or relationship, or depth of knowledge of God, or forgiveness of sin, and salvation, and assurance, and peace, and joy, all of those things are found in Christ, in whom we have been filled up. There's no other teaching we need to supplement what is found in Jesus. We need no other philosophy to fill some dark recesses of our hearts because Jesus just isn't quite scratching that itch. Fullness in every aspect of our life is found in Him. And where those other philosophies and religions and worldviews offer empty promises, Jesus offers fullness. Where they can only offer slight comfort in this life, and destruction in eternity. Jesus offers true peace and joy in this life and eternal salvation in eternity. In Christ and in Him alone are we made absolutely full, lacking nothing. Everything we need to be complete, everything we need to be truly filled up again and again and again is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want, I want to implore us as a church, as Redeemer Church, as, as one of the local bodies of Christ, as Christ's bride, let us stand firm together and denounce all that would take our eyes away from Jesus. In this culture that is surrounding us up here in St. Albans, Vermont, in New England, in the midst of of all of these worldviews that that want to claim our hearts and claim our minds, let us stand firm. Let us, in the words of Paul, see to it that we are not taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Let us be filled with Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You. We thank You so much, Lord, that in a, a world of fallenness, of sin, of deceitful religions and worldviews and philosophy, Lord, we know that there is truth in You. Lord, You told us that You are the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through You. Lord, that is our confession. Let us hold tight to it. Enable us to be bold. God, as we, as we confront and face a world that hates that message. In the face of a world, in the face of an enemy that wants to deceive us and pull us back into the darkness that you saved us from. Lord, we love you. I pray that as we go out, 
As we leave this church, as we go about our weeks, Lord, that when people see us, they, they see a people marked by thanksgiving. Because we have the truth. We have you. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.